Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. If you guys have a Bible, why don't you take it out? We're going to be in Mark chapter 7 today. Um, it, uh, if you guys were here last week, you know that I just got back from a trip from Israel. I was there for a couple weeks, and that has um, just been used by the Lord, just going to recharge my own faith. Uh, we are in a series of conversations called Everyday Kingdom, and we're asking the question, what does this whole Jesus thing look like? The kingdom that he's bringing, uh, how does that translate to our everyday life, to our work, to our commute, to our family? And so uh, today we're going to be continuing uh, just this idea, and, and kind of for me, the theme that I keep understanding is Jesus desires to be in the everyday. If you can think of a, a section of your life that you don't really welcome God into, maybe, maybe not even purposefully, what would it look like to invite him in into that? And, and for me, I have, as I've been kind of pondering that question the past few weeks, I have found myself being surprised by Jesus, which is, which is the theme of our, our message today, is being surprised by Jesus, who he is, his involvement in our life. And we're going to be reflecting on a story um, today when Jesus does something and a few things that are surprising and shocking to the people who really thought they knew him. Have you guys ever had, an, had a moment where someone you knew or thought you knew responded in a way that shocked you? In a way that you're like, oh, I, I, I sometimes there's people in lives you can start to predict how they're going to respond, right? You kind of know when you walk into the door after work, Maybe the, the comments you're going to receive, you heard some new news, and so you know how they're going to respond to that. Or you have a boss, and you know if you're five minutes late, he's going to probably act like this. And, and you kind of start predicting the people that you know, this is how they will act, because they know you. And every once in a while, you'll be shocked. Every once in a while, you'll be surprised. Like, man, I, I thought you would have acted like that, but you actually acted like that. So this week, I was... I was hanging with uh, Augustine, and I took him with me to go pick up our girls from school. And every time Augustine is in the car, he takes his shoes off. It is the most frustrating thing in the world. It smells bad. It's more time. It's just, I'm like, I, I'm like just, could you just keep them on? He's like, nope. I'm like, oh, okay. So, so it's kind of his thing. And so and that means every time we arrive anywhere, we need to put shoes on. And so we, we end up at the school, and he's, and he's sitting there, and I'm like, you know, strapping his little, his little vans on his feet, and this, um, and he's kind of giving me a hard time, and thinks it's kind of funny, and every once in a while, I'll just kind of like try and kick me in the face. I'm like, whoa, dude. And this lady walks by, and you can kind of see that we're, we're kind of struggling, and she looks in, and elderly lady, and she's like, she's like, I really like your shoes. And, um, and he kind of looks at her, kind of embarrassed, and and I'm like, say thank you. <laughs> Kid you not, promise the Lord. I'm waiting for a uh, thank you. And he literally looks up at her and goes, you too. <laughs> Kid you not, with the mouth in the other, he goes, you too. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? And she just, she just laughs and keeps walking. And I was like, man, I, had, I did not see that coming. Like the fawns right now just totally just acting out of character. 
And I'm sure that this is kind of one of those moments for Jesus' disciples where they've, they've started to realize that, man, Jesus throws curveballs all the time. But this one, for me, even when I read it, I'm like, man, this is out there. And so this is going to be in um, Mark chapter 7. Let me give you some context before we dive into the actual passage. Uh, we're reading in, in a book called Mark, and if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, there, it's separated into two sections. There's an Old uh, Testament or covenant, and there's a New Testament, New Covenant, and, and it's separated by the life of Jesus. So when Jesus shows up, begins this new uh, section of uh, readings, books. And the first four books in that new covenant are what we call the Gospels. And they are four biographies of the life of Jesus, each written by a different author with a different perspective and shines a, a unique light onto the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus but we think that this is referring to John Mark, who is writing down Peter's um, experience of following Jesus, which, um, which kind of shines some unique light on this, because if you know about the life of Peter, Peter was kind of the head disciple, also the one who had most of the issues. And so as we read Mark's account of Jesus's life, we have to look through that through the lens of, man, this is Peter telling us, this is the earliest of the, of the biographies, it's the shortest. And he starts to write this story, and he's writing it to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish people, um, especially since my trip to Israel, have just been fascinating throughout history. Because if you look at their existence as a people group, they have spent more time without having a land or a nation than they have had with it. And so they had a few hundred years of having a very prosperous land where Israel is today. And about five, um, sorry, about 700 years before Jesus showed up, that land was taken over by a series of different regimes and, and different kind of powerhouses of that day. First it was Assyria, then Bab- Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, and now the Romans are in power. And so we are writing to, or Mark is writing to an audience, a Jewish audience, who has not known their own land. Um, it has been occupied by someone else for 700 years. What's fascinating is that Jewish people are one of the strongest culturally grounded groups of people in the world, even without a nation, without land. And one of the ways they do this is they do this through traditions, which is why tradition is so important to the Jewish people, because this is, what, this is the glue that keeps them together. This is how we do things. And so what that creates is this sense of survival of nationalism for the Jewish people. Like, we, if we don't have a sense of who we are, we will, we will fade into oblivion. And throughout all certain, certain, whoever's kind of occupied their land or taken them over, they have remained. It is amazing, just from an anthropological standpoint, watching the Jewish people remain the Jewish people. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, there is this, there is this expectation, this prophecy that one day the Jewish people are going to be liberated from this vicious cycle. And there would be this one um, known as the anointed one or Mashiach in Hebrew, which we translate as Messiah or the Christ, that would come and he would eradicate everyone who's come to oppress them and he would set up a kingdom that would never come to an end. And so there is this expectation, but it's very, 
it's very nationalistic and Jewish in its, in its uh, worldview, that you're going to come to save the, the Jewish people, which is true, but it's not the full picture. So when Jesus comes up into the scene and he starts doing all of these miracles and all of these things, people are fascinated by this new rabbi in the scene and they start to murmur amongst themselves, could this be the Mashiach? Could this be the Messiah? Because he seems to be fitting all the bill. Maybe he will rise to power and he will overthrow it. But then he does certain things that not only confuse the people of the day, they actually frustrates them. And one of the main things that he does is he steps outside of his Jewish origin into the world of the non-Jews or the Gentiles, as they were called in scripture, and he shows compassion, he shows mission, and he shows focus to people who are not one of them. And so, he, so people start to being, become frustrated with him. And this is one of those stories where Jesus ventures outside of the Jewish cities and finds himself, even though he's still in Judea, he's in a city as part of what's called the Decapolis. The Decapolis were a series of 10 cities throughout the ancient world. One of them existed in Israel, and these cities were supposed to be mini-Romes. Uh, they're gorgeous and beautiful, and they are filled with coliseums and, and huge Roman arches and things like that. They would be, and they were kind of the stations in that world that made sure that the, the Greco-Roman worldview existed. And so the entire kind of uh, Jewish kind of land at that time knew this city as a place that was not Jewish, even though it was in their region it was a place that Greeks existed and, and Romans existed and the Hellenistic culture existed. The problem was this city in between them of the Decapolis existed between Galilee and Jerusalem, which means Jesus would have traveled through this city all the time. This happened to be one of the places I got to see um, when I was in Israel. And so I want to show you a couple, couple of videos so you can kind of see uh, the ancient a uh, city that's still there that you can walk out and it is spectacular. And you can imagine like this, and we can go, there's a few more videos. Uh, uh, imagine this thousands of years ago in its pristine condition. Let's go to the next one. Um, this, so this is the main walkway that you would have walked down. The tiles are still in place. Uh, these are some of the columns that they found and re-erected. Uh, Jesus would have walked along this road in between Galilee and Jerusalem probably multiple times. And here's one more video. I just want you guys to get a picture of what this place looks like. Um, and it, it would have been um, just a sight to see in that day. And so I want you to have that in your imagination when we read this story because this is the context of where it takes place. Don't, don't think of a small fishing village in Galilee. Uh, don't think about a hyper-Jewish uh, religious city like Jerusalem. No, think of a massive Greco-Roman metropolis. And so this is in Mark chapter 7, verse 31. It begins, it says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. These are, these are kind of northern uh, cities by the Mediterranean down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus is now in this region, in this city. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. 
After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha. That's a fun one to say, right? Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Um, Powerful story that happened somewhere around this region, uh, which which means this man was, was probably not uh, Jewish of descent. Could have been, um, but based on where he was living and uh, the things that he had to face, being deaf and mute, probably would not have traveled far from home. But we have Jesus showing up on the scene. There's three things I want us to look at today that, that surprise us about Jesus in this story and still surprise me to this day. Number one is the subtlety of Jesus. The subtlety of Jesus in this story. Number two is the sensitivity of Jesus. And lastly is the substance of Jesus. I just want to walk through these three kind of uh, movements in this story and and kind of ask us to say, hey, could we be surprised by Jesus 2,000 years later? And the very first thing that sticks out to me is the subtlety that Jesus portrays in this story. And you might be like, well, how is he subtle? Well, look at verse 33. It says, after he took him aside away from the crowd. Verse 36 says, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. If you do a quick Google search on how many times Jesus said uh, he removed himself from the crowd, it's astounding. This is a common theme throughout all four of the Gospels. It seems that whenever Jesus has an opportunity to make a power play, to do a great marketing campaign, to build his rapport, he doesn't take it. Rather than being opportunistic, he tends to kind of shoo away any opportunity that he would have to grow his influence and his ministry. I mean, this, this would drive a sales and marketing person today nuts. Like, what are you doing? capitalize on this. Like you're, you're about to do something that no one's seen in this region before. And Jesus takes this man who's brought by friends, which means there's already a crowd starting to gather. And this time Jesus is already, his fame's renowned. He takes him and he removes him from the crowd. And then after the miracle, he says, don't tell anyone. What in the, what in the world is Jesus doing by throwing away these opportunities. And here's what's even more astounding, is that Jesus doesn't do it in this story. He does it all the time. Why wouldn't you just say, get the word out, right? Please, post a picture, tag me, you know, like just tell people what I'm doing and so that we can reach as many people as possible. Even, even, the, the, even the evangelists in me, I'm like, well, why not? Don't you want people to know? Why are you always dismissing crowds? Why are you always being subtle? But what's fascinating is is maybe Jesus was up to something. Because when I, a couple weeks ago, as I'm traveling around to all these archaeological sites, 
I'm amazed because every single one of these sites is attached to a person. Oh, Herod the Great built this, or so-and-so built this. And my friend and I, as we're, as we're dialoguing, his name is Shane, begins to start asking, he's like, he's like, isn't it fascinating that every single name we hear brought up on this trip, other than Jesus, was a builder? But Jesus never built anything. And, and yeah, you're like, maybe you built a table. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> but he never built a city, right? He never built a massive temple. He never built anything that archaeologists will ever uncover. And as we're talking to, to our, our tour guide, we kind of bring something like, isn't it crazy how... How, how much influence Jesus has around the world, the most, unarguably, the most influential uh, historical figure, whether you believe in him or not. And he never built anything. And then he's like, he's like, yes, and he also never wrote anything either. And I was just like, and I just began to think, I could not think of one famous person that, that, that has gone before me that had not built something, written something, or had led some sort of conquering army. I can't think of one. And maybe you can. It's a fun exercise. Can you think of one historical figure you know that did not write something, build something, or lead a, like a conquering army? And Jesus did none of those things. Jesus was subtle. Jesus dismissed crowds. Jesus pulled people away and said, hey, just don't even mention this one. And, and maybe... Although there are tons of historical figures that we study and revere and we look to, none of which could ever compare to Jesus, maybe there's something about his subtlety that is a clue to his influence. Maybe for this man who he healed, he wanted him to know, hey, you're not a part of my agenda, I just love you. Hey, what I'm about to do right here is not transactional. You don't have to do anything for me. I'm just going to heal you. And then you begin to start thinking about the entire agenda of Jesus' love. And isn't it that? Isn't it this subtle, humble, radical kind of love that expects us not to do nothing in return and he'll still love us and he's not trying to do anything that gathers fame for him at this point, right? We know he's the king of kings, that day is coming. But while he was on earth, you know what he did? He says, hey, listen, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came as subtle as I can. I became a human being born in a manger, And here we are 2,000 years later still talking about someone who never built anything, wrote anything, or led an army. Because the way he loved was so pure, unconditional, untransactional that we can't stop talking about it. Because the reality is how we love people often comes with these hidden strings attached. I, I hope you love me back. Or I hope you noticed that I loved you. Did you notice how I just served you right there? Because as people, we're always trying to, to utilize and use our love as a means to actually benefit ourselves. And for Jesus, he was the only one we can look to who did this perfectly. He says, no, no, I'm just going to love you. I don't care if anyone sees it. I don't care if anyone tells. A matter of fact, I'm going to ask you, please don't tell anyone. I just want you to hear. I just want you to speak again. 
And, and this is what for the Jewish people was so hard for many of them to grasp was how can you be the Messiah and not build a crowd? How are you gonna overthrow the Roman Empire if you keep dismissing your followers? And to this day, they still have the same problem. And this is, this is why Isaiah 53, Jen was watching some really amazing videos last night of, of, of Jewish people reading Isaiah 53. This is, a, this is a passage 700 years before Jesus showed up describing the Messiah. Listen to how this Messiah is described and, and the subtlety, the humility that's surrounded by this world-changing figure that we'll come to know as our Lord and Savior. Isaiah 53 verse one says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, this punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Maybe the subtlety of Jesus was set in place because his agenda was not to raise himself up, it was to raise you up. he would take off his robe, wrap a towel around his waist, and spend the last night he had on earth scrubbing the dirt off his disciples' feet. And we still can't get enough. It's the subtlety of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the dismissal of the crowds that we love because we're like, man, we have a God who loves us unconditionally, untransactionally. He just loves us. The second thing that surprises me about Jesus in this story is the sensitivity of Jesus. It says, after he took him aside from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephaphatha, which means be opened in Aramaic. Now, let, let's stop right here because this is a very peculiar scene that Jesus is acting out. Um, one that we read and I feel uncomfortable reading it. I can't imagine being there. I'm like, oh, really? Like, just as a rule of thumb, I don't let people put their fingers in my ears. You know, like... <laughs> Nor do I let them, like, touch my tongue. I mean, there's just so many, like, lines being crossed in this story, right? And then he just says the word ephaphatha, which sounds offensive. It's just like, wow, there's just so much going on in this story that I, I just kind of, it's kind of almost cringeworthy. I'm like, what is happening right now? Uh, but here's what the author is describing. And, and I didn't pick this up at first, but as I'm starting to study the original language, what's happening here, it's very apparent to the original audience who would have read this in its original language exactly what Jesus is doing here. Is he, the reason why he did this, and he's never done this in any other healing, 
is because he's catering this healing, this miracle, in a way that a deaf and mute person would understand. So he can see, obviously. So imagine this. He leads him away from a crowd. And what many scholars believe that he's doing is he's signing to him. He's visualizing, this is what I'm going to do for you. Your ears, I'm going to open them. Your tongue, I'm going I'm to make words come out. And before he ever says the words that bring healing, he's describing to this man, in and in, in there's, then it sends that language is lending to this very sensitive kind of way. This is what I'm going to do to you. Because remember, this man didn't come to Jesus on his own. His friends brought him, which means we have no idea where this man's faith is. Maybe he doesn't believe at all that he could heal him. And so Jesus takes the time and says, hey, I'm gonna, before I even just do something crazy that's gonna blow your mind, I wanna let you know exactly what I'm going to do. And then he says with a deep Sigh, he looks to heaven, and he doesn't speak Hebrew. He speaks Aramaic, which would have been this man's native language, Ephaphatha, which is, if you can just imagine, if you know how to read lips, which they would have had to do, that's hard to mishear that word or missee that word, Ephaphatha. I mean, like, it's, you can't, like, you know exactly what he's saying, whether you can hear him or not. And, it's, and, the, and the, the writer says he looks up to heaven and with a deep sigh, it is a physical movement. This is what I'm doing right now. Ephaphatha, be opened. It says this man was healed and immediately his ears are open, his tongue is loosened and he's speaking plainly. And I always move towards, I, I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh, maybe this is how Jesus healed him. Maybe there's something really cool about the fingers in your ears. It's like, wet willies just got super anointed, you know? But, but really what scholars are saying is like, this, this has nothing to do with the methodology or the function of the miracle. It has everything to do with Jesus being sensitive to a deaf and mute man. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm not going to try and freak you out or frighten you. I'm going to let you know this is exactly what I'm going to be doing. Now watch me as I look to heaven with this sigh, visible movement. I'm going to say the words in your language you're about to speak, maybe for the first time, be opened. And this man was not only healed, but he was met with sensitivity. I don't need anyone to see this. There's no crowd. I'm going to speak your language that you see. Sign language wasn't invented until 1750 in France. There was no sign language back then. But we believe Jesus at this moment is probably doing his version of sign language for this man. He's, he's showing this immense sensitivity to him. I mean, it's, it's astounding to think. And, and to be honest, the, the reason why this is surprising to me because I, my theology my, is, is normally this. I need to come to Jesus how he wants me to come. He's holy, I'm not, I've got to come and worship. And then there's a lot of truth embedded in that. But what's shocking to me personally about this story is this takes the incarnation just to another level. Not only did I become human, I'm actually going to speak the language, the sign language for a deaf and mute man. 
Like he comes to us in, in such a sensitive way. And I think about everyone in this room, every single one of you is wired differently. You have different personalities. You hear God differently. And for me to stand up here and to say, hey, listen, if you just do what I do, you'll interact with God, I think is mistelling of what we see here in this story. No, no, Jesus comes to you, and he has the ability to interact with you in such a way that only you would know it. He has an ability to speak to you. If you're an intellectual He's given us the gift of incredible PhD level authors and apologists that you can read and have your mind stimulated and find God there. If you're highly relational, God can surround you with people to show you and demonstrate his love. If you love creation, you're an Encinitas. Um, so you're like, he can meet you wherever you are and say, I'm gonna reveal myself to you in a, in a sensitive and unique personal way to you. Not because God is catering to us, but because he's just that big. There's not a single person on the planet that he does not know how to approach. Any any of you who are longing for those who maybe have walked away from Jesus, Jesus knows how to speak their language. He knows how to meet anyone where they are with what they're going through. And now it may not happen in the way or the timing you or I would like, but it does not mean that he cannot do it like he did for this man. Think about Hebrews chapter four. One of my favorite passages says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Speaking of Jesus, what a a line. We don't have a high priest. We don't have a, a God. Jesus is not one who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That word empathize means to suffer with. There's a lot of times I have conversations with people that are like, man, you just don't get it. And I'm, I'm, and I'm glad to confess, you're right. I never want to presume I understand someone else's pain. But we do have a God who's able to speak a language that maybe no other human being is speaking to you. But he can meet you in a way that no other human being, maybe even your best friend or your spouse or your parent, has ever been able to do. Jesus can do that. He can not only bring the healing that you desire, but he can do it in such a way that lets you know his intimate love for you as well. And number three, the probably the most shocking and encouraging thing about this whole thing is the substance of Jesus. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they just kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. Even everything well. Now, the reason I wanted to show you guys those images, I want you just to to imagine something. Um, if you were to be in the surrounding region that day, what you would find are small um, box-type houses made with lava stone, um, humble, small, villages scattered throughout 100 people, 500 people. But then you walk into the Decapolis, 
And you walk on these limestone, sandstone, marble, massively tiled walkways. And on either side are pillars that weigh several tons. And you're walking under these massive wooden beams. And on either side there are stores and you're smelling things and seeing things you've never seen before. And you turn the corner and then you see the pagan temple. And it is enormous. It is the most beautiful thing that you have ever laid your eyes upon. And in those ancient days, you're walking on the street, you walk up to this temple, and you are just overwhelmed by the beauty and the grandeur of this holy place. You walk into the middle of the temple, and right in the middle of it is a small, golden, hand-carved figurine. And that's the God that they worshipped. You see, the entire pagan world was filled with a massive display of hollow. That was their religion. Look at how big and amazing and awesome it is, and when you get to the heart of it, it's nothing. And Jesus comes as the exact opposite. He says there's nothing about him that would have drawn to him. He was like someone you wouldn't even want to look at. He's just this person that chew away crowds. I mean, there's nothing about this guy other than his substance. When you get to know Jesus, you aren't disappointed. You are amazed. What it says, you are overwhelmed with amazement. It was the opposite of the pagan religion of the day. No, 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 this isn't a show. This isn't just some big display with a hollow substance. No, no, this is a humble display with a massive substance. This is the God of the universe. And this is the most shocking thing of all, that this small carpenter Jewish man born in a a migrant camp called Nazareth, a nobody was doing things that the world could not contain. The substance of Jesus has not changed. And I would just, I want to to exhort and challenge your spirit this morning along with myself. Have we begun to tame who Jesus is in our life? Have we begun to just diminish and, and normalize who Jesus is. Have we, have we just began to think of Jesus as this nicety, this, this sweet, nostalgic person who makes you feel good? Or do we understand that the substance of Jesus has never changed? He's still this Jesus, and he's enthroned in heaven, and his spirit is alive in every single one of us. And my, my prayer this morning is that we would be shocked not only with the subtlety and humility of Jesus, the sensitivity of our Messiah, but we would have a renewed awe of this is our God. This is Jesus and he's here and he's present and he walks with us. And Hebrews 13 says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever which means he has not changed. His substance has not changed. And so when the people begin to talk about, and they say this line, I love it, he has done everything well. It is a Greek way of reciting the very same line from Genesis chapter one after God creates something, and he says, it is good. 
And so the original leaders, when they were readers, it was, they would have heard this refrain, he has done everything well. It is, it is an exact tie to the same phrase of what God was doing at the beginning of creation. He created light and dark, and it was good. He created this, and it was good. And here they are, thousands of years later, looking at this Jewish rabbi, and they say, it, he has done everything well. It is good good because the substance hasn't changed his power has not changed his ability has not changed I want you to remember for a moment who's writing this from whose perspective this is being written remember we talked about this although Mark is writing this he's most likely writing on behalf of Peter As the story is being recorded and we're confronted with the humility and the subtlety of Jesus, I can't help but thinking about the egotisticalness of Peter. I can't help but thinking Peter looking at this and being like, that is not me. I don't dismiss crowds, I gather them. I don't tell people to be quiet, I'm an opportunist. I'm an opportunist. I just make, what is it about Jesus? I think about, I think about the sensitivity that Jesus had. And I think about Peter and the brash and hardened heart that he displayed again and again and again before Jesus fully got a hold of his. And I think about Peter filled with empty promises. I will go with you to death, Jesus. And then he betrays him. He was a hollow man. But he's following him a rabbi of substance. <clears throat> and I think it's why this story is, is told in Peter's point of view because this, he couldn't forget it. The Holy Spirit is writing this story through the imagination of Peter and the writing of, of John Mark because I think this, there's something about this story that Peter just was wowed by. He was surprised and shocked by Jesus because this was not who he naturally is. So I want to I want to leave you with the um, the important theological question of the day. So what? Um, so what? So what? Je- Jesus is displays a subtle humility and a sensitivity, and there's substance to him. What does that mean for our life? Just three things I would like to propose to you. Number one. The subtlety of Jesus invites us to not to strive or perform to receive love. You do not have to do anything to receive his love. And yet when you do receive his love, you can't not do something, but you can't reverse the two. So my encouragement, the application, if you will, of this thing, I think the subtlety of Jesus invites us and calls us to a kind of faith that is not performance-driven. We can be and exist within the love of our Father because Jesus displayed that to us. Number two, the sensitivity of Jesus invites us to know an empathetic God. Maybe for you, you, you've always viewed God as, as distant, someone who doesn't get it, and you don't get him. And I think how we can live out this week is beginning to just say, Lord, I want to believe and know 
that you can meet me exactly where I am, how I am. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to be someone I'm not. One of, one of the best ways I would like to practically challenge you is, is look at how you pray. Um, I know for me, a lot of times, the way I pray to God is not how I talk to a friend. It's not how I talk to my dad. It's not how I talk to someone who's close to me. It's incredibly formal. It's, it's sincere. Don't get me wrong. It is so sincere and is revering. But there's something about the understanding, the empathy of Jesus, that there are spaces in my life where I, I am invited into just talking to Jesus just as I am. That's okay. He'll meet me there. And to go a step further, maybe... Maybe he'll speak to me in the language that I know. Maybe he'll show up and begin to start revealing himself to me that isn't, I'm not just looking for an actual burning bush to show up or, or chills to come over my body. Maybe it's very normal. You ever think about that? Maybe God speaking to you is more normal than you think. It's why you dismiss it so much. It's like, oh, no, that's my own. That's just my own imagination, my own voice. Or, or maybe you just serve a God who's empathetic and knows how to talk your language. Maybe he is speaking to you. Maybe it's not that complicated. And lastly, the substance of Jesus invites us to worship. Who Jesus is, again and again and again, invites us into amazement and awe of who our God is. I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come back up and I'd love to just sing that last song, just a, maybe just a chorus again. And I'd love to end our morning reacting like everyone else did in this story, even after Jesus says, hey, listen, don't, don't say anything. They're like, I can't not say anything. You're amazing. You've done everything well. You've done everything well. It is good. You are good. And Jesus, you're the same yesterday as you are today, right now, and you are the same as you will be tomorrow. So would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet? And I'm gonna pray, and as we do, we're just gonna sing and end our morning worshiping a God who is not hollow or made up, but is real and powerful and moving in this place. I'm gonna invite you, would you just close your eyes? Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.